This episode of New Politics was released on the 15th of December, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, it's our final podcast of the year, and we look at some of the key issues from 2021 and what might happen in 2022. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. It was a big year in politics in 2021, and it's difficult to accept that so much has happened in such a short period of time. It started off with the allegations of a sexual assault at Parliament House and sexual harassment and abuse of women was a recurring theme throughout the year. And the year ended with further allegations against federal ministers behaving badly. The coronavirus pandemic was yet another key feature of the year with the federal government botching the procurement and rollout of vaccination supplies and failing to develop quarantine facilities around Australia. And the failure of the Berejiklian government to manage the Delta outbreak in June, that led to extended lockdowns in Sydney and Melbourne, with the Morrison government continuing the border wars with the Western Australian, Queensland and Victoria governments and trying to hide their failures in managing the pandemic. And there were also so many important issues left behind with no action at all on climate change and absolutely no action at all on removing corruption within politics. The year has gone very, very quickly and it has been a very tiring year, but there are so many things that have happened throughout this year and it's been absolutely action-packed. For those of us hoping for a better 2021 than 2020, we were on Santa's naughty list, so we didn't get it. It was so full of farce, tragical, tragic farce and farcical tragedy that it was a challenge just keeping up for the the bi-weekly podcast. Historians in the future, I think, are going to look at this pandemic in a very close way and and the way that governments tried to use the pandemic to hide their weaknesses and their shortcomings. Really interesting times. Well, one consistent factor throughout this year has been that there are so many areas that have just not been attended to or they've just been left behind, and that's climate change, corruption in politics, the way that women are treated and represented or not represented in the political system. And and for those areas that have been managed, they have not been managed very well, and that's mainly those issues that relate to the pandemic, such as the vaccination rollout and the quarantining system. Now, The government can argue that managing the pandemic has been the biggest task ever undertaken by a federal government in Australia's history, but I think that that's actually a cop-out. Governments should be able to take on many issues at the same time, but ideologically, the Liberal Party wants to reduce the role of government, even at a time when it's desperately needed by the community. Whether there's small government or big government, that's not really the point. The issue is that government should be efficient and effective. And you'd expect that if there's an ideological push to have smaller government, well, there's actually less to manage. And at least they should be able to do that well. But that just has not been the case at all. This has been, in my opinion, this has been one of the most incompetent governments in federal history. I'm quite comfortable saying that it is the most incompetent. That's including the Abbott government and the Turnbull government, the McMahon government, the Cook government, and with some qualification, the Scullin government. 
we could probably throw in the Gorton government, but you can point to Gorton and McMahon and see some achievement. Gorton starts looking at the arts and expanding the universities. Uh, McMahon starts withdrawing troops from Vietnam, reluctantly but sensibly. There's a few of those things. I can't really see anything that the Morrison government has done that it hasn't been either dragged kicking and screaming to, such as vaccine procurement. Uh, And we've seen this week that Pfizer was literally banging the door down and uh, Greg Hunt refused to talk to them. No wonder he he is standing down at the next election. It's an, an incredible state of affairs that Australia, which is, let's be honest, has an excellent record of government. There's shortfalls and and shortcomings, don't get me wrong. There's plenty that the Australian government could have improved upon. We can start with treatment of Indigenous people and, and Indigenous policy, and that's true from 1901. But given that the federal government wasn't terribly corrupt until 2013, it wasn't as unfair to most of its citizens till 2013. And most governments left office, whether voted out or stepping down, mostly uh, mostly voted out, with a record of achievement that most of them could look back and say, yes, we left the place almost better than we found it or better than we found it. I don't know what Scott Morrison thinks his legacy is going to be because the half-hearted marketing speak that he keeps pushing doesn't last. Incompetence doesn't quite cover the the omni-shambles that it's been, but it will do for the moment. Well, the system of government that Australia does have, it's actually quite a solid form of government. The mechanisms that are in place for Australia's government are, are very sound. So the issue is, I guess, it's the people that occupy all of these positions, and that's where the problem arises. Probably there are not enough safeguards for having this type of government, and I mentioned this a few times throughout the year. It's almost like there's a group of anarchists within the government at the moment where they're not concerned about these mechanisms or the systems that are in place for government. They just do whatever they want. They take whatever they want as well, and eventually this sort of process and this sort of behaviour, it does have to crack. And that's the main reason why I do so, that this is one of the most incompetent governments that we've ever, ever had in history. You, you actually say that it is the most incompetent government in history, and I don't think I can disagree with that. But there's just something fundamentally wrong within the Liberal Party over the past, well, some would argue that it's happened over the past 25 years. There's just something that's happened within the Liberal Party. It's like an anarchist society now where it seems like there are no repercussions, but ultimately it's up to the electorate to decide whether this is an incompetent government or a competent government that deserves an extra three years, and I guess we'll find out what happens at the next federal election. Yeah, we've said it before. It's 151 elections. It's not one election. Each seat will have little things that will push its decision one way or the other. The popularity of the Prime Minister or the lack of popularity of the Prime Minister is a factor, but people will do things like vote for their local member who's a member of the government, hoping that the government will lose enough seats that their respected and revered local member keeps his or her seat, but the government loses. And if that happens in enough seats, you get bad governments or unpopular governments returned. Certainly, polling is showing a landslide. 
I saw a uh, poll that said Liberals would lose all but 23 seats and the National Party would have 13 seats. Now, I found that poll interesting because the National Party usually ends up with between 10 and 17 seats. And I think they've got 13 at the moment. So if that poll is correct, and whether it is or not, I don't doubt the honesty in the poll. I do doubt the accuracy in the poll. The National Party isn't about to be wiped out, which I find extraordinary with Barnaby Joyce being a campaign point for the independents. Nearly every independent is saying a vote for the Liberal Party and inner city liberals is a vote for Barnaby Joyce. So again, I don't quite know what's going on there, but it does show that predicting things is hard because you've got to be able to predict 151 separate elections. Today, here and in many cities across our country, women and men are gathering together in rallies, both large and small, to call for change and to act against violence directed towards women. It is good and right, Mr Speaker, that so many are able to gather here in this way, whether in our capital or elsewhere, and to do so peacefully to express their concerns and their very genuine and real frustrations. This is a vibrant liberal democracy, Mr Speaker. Not far from here, such marches, even now, are being met with bullets, but not here in this country, Mr Speaker. Not here in this country. This is a triumph of democracy when we see these things take place. Mr Speaker, those who gather here today and around the country do so out of... Sexual assault issues and the treatment of women sort of bookended this year. Grace Tame was announced as the Australian of the Year in January. Then there was the revelation of a rape at Parliament House. Then there was the March for Justice campaign, and that arose after Brittany Higgins made the allegation that she was sexually assaulted at Parliament House back in 2019. Then there were those allegations against Christian Porter and Alan Tudge, and it ended with the sexual harassment report from Kate Jenkins and further allegations against Alan Tudge. So that was an issue that permeated throughout politics during the year. Christian Porter will be out of politics after the next election. Alan Tudge, we assume he will still be there, but these are issues that have got a long way to go before they're anywhere near being resolved. Even John Howard held his ministers to a standard. He kept lowering the standard, (laughs) arguing that maybe the standard was too high and it didn't allow for genuine errors and it didn't allow for moments of genuine ignorance and that a lot of the stuff that people were resigning for was stuff that the average person, the old English term, the man on the Clapham omnibus might have fallen into. And so that you can bring in things like the Minchin Protocol, where if you're overpaid for your travel allowance, you can pay back the overpayment. Of course, this stuff starts not being applied consistently or even fairly Peter Slipper doesn't get the chance to pay back the $900, whereas Stuart Robert, who paid thousands and thousands for home internet, and all I can say is that whoever was the provider saw him coming a mile away, I get unlimited for about $1,200 a year. He does get to pay it back where he should have been humiliated out of parliament for that level of clear rort. Again, I'm not opposed to busy, exhausted people being able to write a a genuine mistake. But it needs to be applied fairly and consistently. And 
honestly. And of course, those are words that really aren't in the current Liberal Party's vocabulary, fair, honesty and consistency. I was reading today about how the Republican Party in America is only at the stage now where it's not about upholding Republican ideals and working the best it can for the United States. It's about winning. And I think that's the Liberal Party here too. They don't care about Australian culture. They don't care about Australian society. They don't care about the norms and precedents and protocols of the Australian Parliament. They care about winning. They care about being in office. And once they're in office, they don't want to do anything with it. They want the rights without responsibilities. Scott Morrison does, as far as we can tell, very little prime ministerial work. He does a bit of party work. He does a bit of donor work. He'll turn up to meetings, but he'll happily shoot off overseas when it suits him. And then he'll be dragged kicking and screaming overseas when it doesn't. It's about making sure that they keep all the trappings of power without the responsibility of power. But when you look at the lack of intellectualism and intellectuals in the Liberal Party, you wonder what happened. And I'll make just one more quick point. The fact that Macalia Cash is the Attorney General. And in Victoria, they had Tim Smith, who hadn't, who's never practiced as a lawyer. And Macalia Cash has done legal work, and I assume it was good legal work, but it wasn't the type of legal work that most Attorney Generals have done. The fact that we have Macalia Cash as Attorney General shows that there's not a lot of demand for the job at the moment. And I think that says probably more about the Liberal Party than it does about the role of Attorney General. But I also think that that whole win-at-all-cost process is actually destroying politics at the moment. And we've had, and I know that Graham Richardson wrote the book, Whatever It Takes, and he's from the Labor side of politics, but this whole process of winning it at any cost is actually destroying politics completely. And once you start lowering the code of conduct, once you start chipping away at all of those high standards that are in place, well, people just modify their behaviour accordingly. If there are no standards, well, what do you expect from Parliament? And this process of diminishing codes of conduct, diminishing protocols and precedents and practices, well, it's it's going through this total process of destroying politics, and we've had just far too long of this sort of process. The Liberal Party needs to be dismantled. New candidates found. Candidates who have watched Australian films who have read Australian literature, who do understand Australian history. It astonishes me the lack of culture that the Liberal Party, who were always the party of high culture, and there were Liberal Party members who had read all the great works of Australian literature, not because they felt they had to, but because it was part of their makeup and it was part of what drove them into politics. The Prime Minister has not, as far as I can tell, made a comment on the whole uh, dark emu controversy. Now, I know that he has to be very careful in what he says because there's two or three or four really very extreme sites, but he could make an acknowledgement that he's aware of it and following it closely, but we know he's not. He'd rather be photographed shearing a sheep and botching that job or sitting in a race car, or sitting in a fighter jet like he's some kind of 12-year-old idiot savant. Of course, they think that this stuff will appeal to an electorate. But of course, the electorate needs to be led. 
And if you start leading, then you start winning. And that's what every Prime Minister up until Morrison, even Tony Abbott, understood, that you have to lead people to a better Australia. You can't just sit there and grin like an idiot and drink beer and pretend to be something that you're clearly not. You need to tell people what it is they should be doing, apart from who to vote for. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now follow us at Patreon. Coronavirus was the big issue in 2020, and there was an expectation that in 2021 it wasn't going to be such a big issue, but it actually was. I suggest that it was actually an even bigger issue in 2021, and during the year we revealed that the vaccines that could have been procured from Pfizer much earlier than they actually were delivered, and we could have received 40 million doses rather than the inadequate amount of 10 million doses. And this was all because Morrison couldn't be bothered picking up the phone to Pfizer and making the deal happen. And all of these issues with the slow vaccination rollout and not having enough vaccines in the country, all of this dovetailed into other problems. The entire country could have been vaccinated before the Delta variant of coronavirus arrived in June. And This resulted in the prolonged lockdowns in Sydney and Melbourne, which almost destroyed the economy as well. And because the vaccination program took so long to implement, that gave more time for the anti-vaccination movement to get organised and they were encouraged or confused by people such as Craig Kelly and George Christensen. These two people are part of government as well. Craig Kelly is now an independent, but previously was a part of the government. And all of this was fuelled by the Murdoch media as well. So it's almost like... At every inch of the way, the vaccination program has been a disaster. And you know, sure, it can be argued that at the end of the year, the vaccination rates are very high and we finally got there in the end. But it took such a long, long time and it caused a lot of pain within the community as well. Yes, New South Wales was responsible for the virus getting back into Victoria. But the protests and the grand final with the secret parties has kept it so that the numbers are still very high. And it is thanks to people like Craig Kelly blatantly lying and George Christensen blatantly lying about the vaccine and what it does and who it is. Why people listen to these people when they're not epidemiologists and they're not giving us any evidence from any epidemiologist, I don't understand. If you argue with a scientist and you're not a scientist, you're wrong. And these guys are wrong. Christensen's leaving parliament... Kelly will likely be leaving. My understanding from the Cedar Hughes is that he's got no chance of getting in, but that remains to be seen. But they're never really slapped down by others. All these so-called moderate 
liberals never say, hold on, that's wrong. I think we got about Christensen, oh, he's a respected member of the party room from David Littleproud, which, as someone pointed out, probably tells you all you need to know about the National Party Room. You don't get a lot of Craig Kelly being slapped down either. You get a bit of, oh, well, uh, a lot of whataboutisms and a lot of reducing of the argument. But any government interested in leading would have shut it down a long time ago. We're seeing it in America now with Joe Biden and other Democrats shutting down arguments that are clearly based on nonsense. And that radical wing of the Republican Party is slowly starting to diminish. They're still dangerous, but they're losing a lot of support. And that's what would have happened here, except it's within the Prime Minister's interest and the Liberal Party's interest to keep this debate going. Corruption just keeps being a big issue that the public wants addressed, and it's as though the government just cannot read the room at the moment on this issue. Three years after a National Commission Against Corruption was promised by Scott Morrison, it still hasn't been introduced. There is a bill for it, but it's been stonewalled. The bill itself is inadequate, and it's unlikely to be introduced before the next election. Around 80% of the electorate wants to see a powerful national commission against corruption. Labor is calling for it. The Greens are calling for it. All of the independent candidates that we've spoken to who are running at the next election, they're all calling for it. And they're also making great political mileage out of this. So the message is that if you're resisting attempts to implement a powerful national commission against corruption, you must either be trying to hide something or you were probably corrupt yourself. And that's where the Morrison government is at the moment. It's resisting a corruption commission because it's a largely corrupt government. Yeah. And I think even people uninterested in politics are sick of the corruption when they understand it. And we can see that in the turnaround in popularity and credibility with uh, Gladys Berejiklian. When the evidence was presented in such a way that even the favourable press towards her couldn't downplay it, she lost all her credibility except with the Liberal Party. Scott Morrison, I think, damaged himself by trying to say that she would run for the seat of Warringah when clearly she hadn't. He since said that she has decided not to and that he understands and respects that decision and what a loss. The only loss would have been her getting less than 3% primary vote in the seat of Warringah, I think. They would have blown their deposit. Uh, one, Zali Stegall has been a very good and a very popular local candidate. And two, Gladys's credibility has gone. Now, you might think it's unfair and blah, 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 and that's politics. There was nothing here that was out of her control. And that's what it gets down to. She chose to do the corrupt thing. There's also been absolutely no action at all on reducing the effects of climate change. It's still a lot of hot air being blown around the room at the moment. The government is still running with its technology, not taxes mantra, even though no one exactly knows what that means. And they're not budging on emissions reduction targets by 2030. They want to keep it at 26 to 28%, while the rest of the world wants a much higher level, and so does the Australian electorate. Australia seems to be missing so many opportunities presented by climate change issues, especially in renewable and alternative energy sectors. But the federal government, they just keep deliberately wanting to miss the boat. And they're actually quite happy to miss the boat on climate change. The technology, not taxes, is, I think, a very poorly thought through attempt to express that government bad business good. It's Ayn Rand without the entertainment value. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever tried to plough through Atlas Shrugged or any of those. 
they're not very entertaining. They're good if you like your novels to yell at you about how useless you are for 300 pages. But apart from that, <laughs> so without the intellectual capacity to explain why he thinks business is better, why government should be reduced, he's hoping that the technology will just magically appear, not really realising that government is usually, particularly in Australia, government is usually a part of the great innovations through universities, to which they've cut 40,000 jobs, through the CSIRO, to which they've cut to nearly nothing, and through other private-public arrangements, which usually privatise the profits and socialise the losses. Usually it's just another bunch of liberal donors carving it up uh, amongst themselves. Not always, but usually. So he's in a corner here. He's hoping that some magic technology might appear that he'll be able to get access to, or that Australia will be able to get access to, that will magically fix the problem by 2030. Again, this is not leadership. This is not policy. This is nothing but the hope that he can stretch out the perks of prime ministership for a couple more years and leave it to whoever's next, whether it's Josh Frydenberg or Peter Dutton or Anthony Albanese and Labor or someone else. It's not government at all. So just looking at a few ideas for next year, about the only thing that we can safely predict is that there will be an election in either March or May 2022, and the election is more than likely going to be fought between Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese. Now, we've been critics of Albanese in the past, and most people have, but it seems like he's sharpening up his message. He's presenting himself with a slightly different public image, and of course, ideas are not enough to win elections. It's a combination of the theatre and the substance of politics. And Labor will need to combine the right balance of political theatre, release enough policy to keep people engaged without being attacked by the federal government and the media, and avoid what happened in the 2019 election. Morrison, on the other hand, he's very predictable, and this might actually be his Achilles heel. His strategy is mainly going to be based around marketing, spin, and manipulation, and he's already pulling out all the important messages out in public. Well, I love utes. <laughs> how good are utes? <laughs> and how good would a big ute be? That's what I'd say. Um, look, that's, I think that's one of the sort of iconic nature of Australian tourist attractions or anywhere in the country. I remember driving up the, you know, the Pacific Highway in, in, in New South Wales and there was a big oyster and the big prawn and the big banana and, and all of these things. I think it's one of the, the amusing elements of these things and I think it's done with tongue-in-cheek as well, which is, I think, very consistent with the Australian... Uh, with the Australian um, sense of humour. 
I've got a feeling that this particular approach or this type of approach won't work as well with the public as it did in 2019. And, you know, I could be wrong about this, but the electorate just seems to be looking for solutions from their politicians now, not just more spin and more political marketing. Yeah, I think he's got to do something that he's never done before. And that's actually productive work that doesn't just benefit him. And I'm also suggesting that the next federal campaign, I'm calling it the three C's of the campaign, and that's corruption, character and climate change. We could probably include coronavirus in there as well. And we've been discussing all of these issues over the past year, and and I feel that they will be forming a key part of the election campaign. Independent candidates, they're also going to be featuring quite prominently. And they're also, all of the independent candidates that we've been speaking to, they're using all of these key issues as well. Corruption, character, climate change. And the Liberal Party could be in for a few surprises in some of those seats in Sydney and Melbourne next year. And there could be some big names who go missing after the next federal election. Yeah, I think that the Liberal front bench is going to look a whole lot different if they lose. And in fact, even if they win, they could win by marginal seats that have little known candidates. I won't say nobodies, I'll say little known candidates outside their their seats, whereas a lot of the bigger names may be gone. And you could still win from there, depending on how many of the littler seats win. If Scott Morrison wins by... He's, he's ahead by seven, technically. That includes, what, the five independents who are supporting the government. If he doesn't have a net gain, I think he'll be in a lot of trouble and may even stand down, being one of the few prime ministers to win the election but still stand down. I do think that Frydenberg's in trouble. I think Tudge is in trouble. Porter's seen the writing on the wall and gone. He was never going to win that seat back. Whoever's replaced him or whoever will replace him, will have a long, hard slog to win the seat. Angus Taylor, I believe, is in trouble in his seat because we know that he's bought more water than he's entitled to, or at least it's strongly suggested that he has, and and that's reverberating around the seat as they watch water prices go up and him get richer. There's a whole range of cabinet ministers who I think might not make it. Now, the cabinet's only about a third If you lose them all, you will end up with a very inexperienced government that may not be able to maintain its position in government. And of course, Labor has started to look like an opposition party that can govern. Again, there's some very strong candidates in the Labor front bench. But if they lose, what does that mean for strong policy and good election campaigns? That'll be the third one in a row that they've lost. There's a whole range of factors we can point to. All of them may be correct. None of them may be correct. One or two of them may be correct. It will make for a very interesting 2022. So that's it for the New Policies podcast, not just for today, but for the entire year. So a big thank you to everyone who has listened in to the New Policies podcast throughout the year or encourage other people to listen in, send an email, a Twitter message or a Facebook post about the New Policies podcast. And a big thank you to everyone who has donated, everyone who became a Patreon supporter, everyone who purchased one of our books, everyone who purchased some of our merchandise. So every little bit helps and it doesn't matter what you do, just do something. I'd like to add my thanks as well. It's really exciting 
getting your feedback. It's great to see how our Patreon page is going. I love seeing what you buy. Aprons, t-shirts, books, stickers, doona covers. I'm just really thrilled that it's going well. And so I'd like to thank everybody. And even if you just listen, that's thrilling. It's nice to know that we have an audience out there. So I'd like to thank everybody and wish them all the very best for the season and hope that's safe and happy and that we might start to see some improvement in 2022. So we'll be having a short break. It's been a very big year for everyone and everyone needs a break. So enjoy the Christmas holidays and we'll be returning in late January for what should be a very big election year. I'm Andy Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next year.